Welcome to the Future of Australia podcast, where your host, Derek Stewart, interviews the entrepreneurs and founders running the 100 fastest growing new businesses in Australia. On episode 30, I interview Kate Save, the CEO and founder of Be Fit Food a pre-made meal business and nutritional kitchen that offers a range of science-backed programs to help you lose weight and improve your health. We discuss her career in diabetes management as a dietitian, including putting in 10,000 hours of patient time over 15 years, which shaped her perspective on the barriers stopping people from eating well and preventing them from making long-term habit changes why her business was losing money and how that motivated her to go on TV and raise funds from the Shark Tank investors, the benefits of partnering with Boost Juice founder Janine Ellis and how the business grew 68% last financial year, doing over $8 million in annual sales, continuing the momentum from Shark Tank. If you are interested in weight loss, better eating, along with dietitian support, check out befitfood.com.au. That's B-E. F-I-T-F-O-O-D dot com dot A-U. So I'm here with Kate Save, the co-founder and CEO of Be Fit Food. Welcome to the podcast, Kate. Thanks for having me, Derek. Nice to be here. That's Virtually. Good, so. <laughs> <laughs> so can you tell us um how what did you do before you started Be Fit Food? What did you study? Uh, what type of companies did you work in? Doing what roles? So I'm a dietitian, exercise physiologist and diabetes educator. So I studied for a long, long time, um, bachelor in nutrition dietetics, a master's of clinical exercise physiology, a diploma in diabetes education and oh, my MBA as well. Sorry. And That's... what made you want to get into that sort of field? Was there, was there a family or a personal involvement with diabetes? Was there a personal transformation in losing weight, in health, in nutrition? What sort of prompted yeah. that? From a young age, I, I guess I used to get all these really horrible tummy aches and bits and pieces, and they look for about eight years to see if they could find anything. And obviously, this is back showing my age a long time ago <laughs> before MRIs were used. So they were looking at x-rays and they could never find it. And then um, years later, they sort of stopped looking when I was about eight. And when I got to 18, I had my own license and I was driving these pains would come back more often. They'd hospitalise me and I'd be pulled over on the side of the Monash Freeway in horrible situations and it was crippling pain. And they ended up finding what they thought was a tumour in my bile duct and doing emergency surgery. And it turned out fortunately to be benign at the time, but um, that was actually the cause of all my pain. And throughout my childhood, I was told that the pain was caused by what I was eating. So I was forever Mm. wanting to know what this mystery food was that I was eating that was causing me to be in pain. And, you know, they would tell me it was lactose intolerance. So I started to learn what food was and what this could possibly be. And obviously never found the answer because that wasn't the real reason behind my illness at the time. But um, yeah, it certainly got me interested. And I pursued personal training when I first, um, or to pay my way through uni really. So as soon as I left school, I was working seven casual jobs. That was even during high school actually. And um, the personal training paid the most. So I did a lot of that and my other jobs around it and uni and that sort of got me through. And 
I started my first business when I was 24, so PPN or Peninsula Physical Health and Nutrition, a dietitian business with a gym and boot camps and all sorts of health professionals. So I had um, physios, osteos, Chinese medicine, myotherapists, personal trainers, all the group fitness stuff, podiatrist, um, plus sex phys, dietitian, all of that as well. And um, it wasn't, wasn't until I had my first child and 23 staff, 24 hours a day that <laughs> I decided that I probably couldn't do it all. So I sold off the gym part of my business, kept the dietitian business and the dietitian business services three private hospitals and 10 medical centres. So I've had that for over a decade now. And alongside that is when I decided um, the world was missing a food company that actually solve people's weight issues. And I know there's a lot of weight loss products out there, but what I knew worked, people had to cook. And that meant people weren't going to succeed if they had to cook forever. So they would say to me, why don't you cook it? And I'm like, well, don't really have the time for that. And <laughs> I started working with a weight loss surgeon. And um, after sort of a few years of working together, what we were finding is people going on these bars and shakes diets prior to weight loss surgery and they'd lose huge amounts of weight. So somewhere between five to 25 kilos in two to eight weeks. And for a lot of people, they'd go, I don't even know if I need surgery anymore when they've lost this much weight. But what we found is they always came back and had surgery because they couldn't keep the weight off because they couldn't sustain a shakes diet for the rest of their life. So it got us thinking because post-surgically, about two years later, 50% of people start regaining weight. And the issue then is it's too not too late, but it's very difficult to change their eating behaviours when they've had some sort of stomach operation that's restricted the volumes they can eat or the types of foods they could eat. So taking it back to basics, I thought, well, why don't we teach them how to eat really well pre-surgically rather than bars and shakes, give them success on a, a weight loss program made out of real food, but still allow them to lose that, you know, five to 15, 20 kilos in that two to eight week period. And if we could do that, then either they wouldn't want the surgery or if they did, hopefully rest of life, they'd feel in control of their food and would know what they should actually eat as opposed to drinking shakes all day and hoping for weight loss. So, um, I started writing the recipes for that and the surgeon then turned around and said to me, uh, are you going to cook the food because my patients don't want to cook this food? And that's when I thought, you know what, I'm going to have to figure out a way. And so um, myself and Dr. Jeffrey Draper went into business. We hired a commercial kitchen, five staff, and started cooking these meal programs. And it was probably within around... Maybe the first year or so, we started to notice that a lot of people that were buying the food were completely off our database, unrelated to weight loss surgery, but they knew someone else who'd lost so much weight that they wanted to try it. And then we found there was a huge amount of people using it that had diabetes and their diabetes was going into remission. So we thought maybe there's something with this program where we can use food as the first medicine prior to whatever other medication they need to go on to for blood pressure or cholesterol or diabetes or surgery or whatever it is. So um, it became something that we could see the vision for um, to be able to help all Australians to eat themselves better is sort of our slogan. And at that stage, that's when um, 
you know, a couple of years into the business, we'd put a lot of money into it, like hundreds of thousands. And I was out. I was out <laughs> of money and still had this vision. And I thought this is never going to come to life because I'm going to be broke and miserable. So I thought, I know how to raise money. I'm going to go on Shark Tank. I've seen that show. They get money. And that's what I thought I would do. Yeah, so, so if we go back to the, the early days, so you're young and you've got all these from a very young age, this kind of, I guess, health-related, food-related health issues, and the doctors, the dietitians are telling you it's something you're eating, but they couldn't really figure out what. And then was it just sort of self-experimentation, elimination diets? How did you sort of, I guess, solve your own problem before going in and, and turning that into a career and helping others? Um, I guess what they were telling me, I knew that it wasn't necessarily lactose because I actually hated milk with a passion. So I knew that I never ate milk and I was like, how can it be lactose? And yogurt wasn't overly fashionable when I was really young, but when I was in my teens, it became really popular. And I thought, I'm not supposed to have this. And then I started reading the labels and realized that a lot of the yogurts were actually quite low in lactose if they had the right types of bacteria in them and all of that. So that got me really interested in looking at, I guess, the food technology and how you manipulate food to make them work for you. And yeah, I think it was just experimenting with food myself. And I was rarely getting sick at that point. But when I did get sick, it was sort of two weeks of being really sick most of the time. And it had actually turned out that if I ate real junky food, I was more likely to get sick. So when they said to me the week before my I actually had surgery. They said, it's emergency surgery. You have to go in. I said, oh, I've had this for 20 years. I've got my <laughs> birthday, my 20th birthday next weekend. I'd rather not. I'd rather just wait. And, you know, being as naive as I was back then, that was kind of so much more important than this surgery. <laughs> and um, I remember hiring out a, a little Italian restaurant for my birthday. It was actually where I used to work. And the Italian owners let me have it for the night and have all my friends there. And it was my last hurrah. I ended up going to hospital that night because I had garlic pizza and um, oh, some my favourite gnocchi dish with all these sun-dried tomatoes and olive oil and all of this stuff. And it turned out that the pain was caused by gallbladder disease that had accumulated when this, um, what they thought the tumour in my bile duct was, this cholidocal cyst, had blocked the bile duct and caused all these stones. So the actual pains I was getting was triggered by fat and nobody knew that. And I didn't even know that until afterwards when they said, oh, we also had to remove your gallbladder because we found all of these stones in there. <laughs> so, yeah. I and never then was knew it a lower fat that. diet that sort of helped? So you were able to sort of shift the diet away towards sort of lower fat, more carbs and protein or you and then that sort of solved it or was it an ongoing sort of battle to, to try and find uh, that, that aspect? I think realistically it's the because I don't have a gallbladder anymore, I can't have too much fat at one time. But um, knowing what I know now, obviously as a dietitian, your protein, you need enough protein to maintain your muscles every day. You want the right sorts of carbs for your microbiome, your good gut health. But healthy fats also play a really important role for hair, skin, nails, brain health, all of that. So look, I manage it really easily now because I have the knowledge. But before I had the knowledge, it was a minefield. And um, I certainly was never put in contact with the right people back then to have it explained to me or to help me. So I 
I learned it myself. And I think that's what I loved about clinical practice was helping people every day. And some of those weeks I would see, I think I saw over 10,000 patients in the sort of the 15 years I was doing the consulting. So I was pretty busy to say the least, but I knew that if someone was coming to me with similar pains and similar problems, I would always tell them, don't stop looking. That is your body and you know if something's wrong and I love that I could actually help people and help change their diets and help them look for things and I knew every blood test, every scan, everything that you could do, whether it was even fructose and lactose intolerance testing so that people weren't getting false information, being told avoid all of these foods and you'll be better when that wasn't actually the case of their condition. So. Yeah, Yeah. and so from the sound of it, you kind of were quite entrepreneurial from the start. You didn't work a long time. Obviously, a lot of dietitians were employed in hospitals and institutional sort of settings, but you um, were in the fitness business, I imagine a trainer, sort of self-employed, and then um, started and built up a team of, like you said, allies that are health professionals. So was that always a goal? But I did the hospital hours too. So so the hours first as part of the requirement? As part of my business, I took on three hospital contracts and did it myself and built up my team to do it. So um, I guess you get the knowledge at school to do it, but then actually implementing it for every, you know, eight hours I was at work, I was probably researching another eight hours to find the answers. And I guess it's like anything, the more you know, the more you realise you don't know or the more you have to learn. And that was why I kept studying because every time I heard about a new condition, I needed to know everything about it to be able to treat someone properly and help, you know, solve their issues. So, Yeah, and so you mentioned earlier the evolution, like I said, listening to the clients, listening to the other health professionals you're working with and the um, takeaway message being we need a done-for-you sort of service. You know, a recipe is great, but you've still got to do the cooking, but, you know, shakes are great, but they've got their downside and and bars. So that sort of done-for-you sort of meal prep. When did the light bulb, sometimes you hear something again and again and again, we need Mm. this, we need this, and it's easy to keep saying, well, I don't do that. But but what was the light bulb where you finally said, I'm going to do it and, like you said, not personally cook it but create a, a business? and a system in order to do, um, you know, meal preparation and delivery as a sort of done-for-you service for your clients? It was when I realised that you could just hire a shared kitchen space. So uh, a lady, Jane Del Rosso, who's now the head of um, uh, the food incubator at Monash University, she had a, a kitchen space called My Other Kitchen years ago now that she used to, or she maybe she does still do it, but she rented out space in a shared kitchen, which allowed small companies to come in of one person or two people and to hire the kitchen for four-hour blocks. So that's, I realised we could start really small and just make 10 meals once a week and then 20 meals and then four times a week, then every day and until we got kicked out of the kitchen for taking up too much space (laughs) and too many deliveries in a nice way. But Mm. um, that's when we had to find our own space and we actually uh, bought a fish and chip shop for a dollar and converted it into a commercial kitchen. And how did that sort of come across? Someone was trying to exit their business, they were on the hook for lease, other obligations, and you just essentially um, did a paper sort of transfer to take on those obligations? And um, or, or what was that? How did that sort of $1 fish and chip shop come up? Yeah. I'd like to take the credit for it, but um, I had a very loyal best friend with a husband in hospitality and he was very thrifty with money too in everything I looked at to rent for commercial kitchens was 
obscenely expensive and still at this point we really had no money because the cost of preparing the food cost more than what we were charging for the food so every time we sold a meal it personally cost us something like four or five dollars um, after they paid their ten dollars ninety five a meal so <laughs> it was a really expensive exercise for us to make food and sell it with Australian labor and hiring and whatever else so um yeah, Jim actually was on the look for um, kind of like a, a space that could be converted easily. So he was looking at banks with, you know, old banks with bank vaults that you could convert into a freezer or old butchers that you could, you know, convert into freezer rooms mm -hmm. and cool rooms and things like that. And he came across this, yeah, fish and chip shop that was abandoned and that was it. So we took on anything that was left. Um can't say at the time um, that ended up being overly fun because we worked out the three cool rooms that were in the building. None of them worked and they <laughs> were rotten, so we had to replace them all. But, you know, we, we got a great starting point and um, we had the shell to build something. And what was that first 12 months like? Like you said, you're kind of, you're not making profit per order, but obviously hoping to achieve scale at a certain point. You found a, what seems to be an affordable model, then you've outgrown that, and then you've gotten the fish and chip shop and, and again, some learning lessons. <laughs> and then did it sort of rocket up straight from there? Was there a, a growing pains? What was that early 12 months when you're sort of committed to it and, and you're, you're going and then sort of obviously um, hmm. going from there? How was that process? I'd like to say I had a plan, but really I didn't. We were selling food online through a website that was costing us a lot of money to get right. And our team at the time of chefs and um, kitchen hands um, were getting really frustrated that probably every hour people would be banging on the door of this fish and chip shop where we'd blacked out the windows and converted it into a, you know, a just a kitchen that wasn't mm -hmm. open and the people in this um this little suburban town um there was a couple of banks nearby and there was a lot of foot traffic and they could smell the food and so they would <laughs> knock on the door and ask to buy the food and we couldn't sell the food because we didn't have a cash register we didn't have a way of selling food other than on the internet so that's when you know, it, the penny sort of dropped um, only with the threat of the kitchen team quitting if I didn't stand at the door and answer it every hour. <laughs> so that's when I, I thought, okay, I'm going to have to put a solution in place. And we literally built a shop that could fit one freezer. It was about the size of a wardrobe. And I just stood in there all day serving customers. And the more customers I served, the busier it got. And it was being able to share the vision, the story, the purpose behind the why, behind the food. So it wasn't the food itself. It was what the food could do and the vision for changing um, or making food the first medicine. And that's what really took off. People could understand why we put, you know, four to 12 veggies in a meal, no added sugar, low sodium, high protein, low carb, using the science of the CSIRO. We we only put into the food what we knew would give the best results. So natural herbs and spices, lean proteins. And, you know, people would say to us, oh, look, the meals aren't that tasty. And I'm like, well, that's not the idea. You want tasty food? Go to the Chinese shop, get your sweet <laughs> and sour. If you want healthy food and you want to fish, fix your diabetes, eat this food because that's what it will do. And funnily enough, over time, people would then come back to us and say, oh, I love your food. It's a best food I've ever had. And um, there was one guy that I can never forget. He said to me, 
Oh, I travel quite a lot and this food is as good as what I get on the aeroplane in business class. (laughs) (laughs) And I thought, is that a compliment or I guess it is. I think for business class, yeah. Maybe not for economy food but business class. No, not economy, yeah. (laughs) And I thought, oh, this is, you know, we have to not pretend to be something else. Our food's we don't want it to look Instagrammable because that's mm. not what it's about. We don't want it to be sugary or salty and addictive. We want you to be satisfied with your portion but achieving your results but uh, also going into that ketosis, that fat burning and getting the results and that was the thing that stood out. So even if we ever got a complaint, I'd say to the person, so why did you start the program in the first place? And I remember one lady saying to me, oh, for weight loss. And I said, oh, so you've been on it um, a week. Have have you lost any weight? And she'd completely bag the food that not even (laughs) a dog would eat it. And she goes, oh, yeah, actually, I've lost 4.4 kilos this week. I'm like, oh, is that normal for you? She's like, no, I haven't lost that much weight in about a decade. I'm like, (laughs) okay, so um, do you think it's working? She's like, yeah, actually, I might order some more for next week. And you know, people just want to be heard sometimes mm. as well. They they want to tell you what they're missing out on when they're not having sugar and salt, when they're not having alcohol, when they're having smaller portions. They want to be heard. And that's part of the service that we offer is a free dietitian consult for anybody who orders a food or is thinking about ordering. We want our dietitian to make sure that it's right for them and that they know from the outset what they're getting. And so when you, like, again, you've got this little storefront, I guess, is sort of facing the street and then you've got the dark kitchen sort of prepping for your customers. Were you essentially like selling subscriptions from that front or was it like try one and if you like it, go on our website and, and subscribe? Yeah, we, so we don't really use a subscription model at all. We still really don't. It's very much by a week at a time. So mm-hmm. breakfast, lunch, dinner and snacks. So the idea is if you take, all the temptation away from someone, they'll succeed. And that's why bars and shakes work in the short term because when you know all you're going to eat is in this box and you can clear out your fridge, freezer, pantry and just eat the 21 meals and the seven snacks, it's much easier than having to, you know, have a little bit of this and a little bit of that and, you know, how much should I have? So we wanted to take the guesswork out of it. And really from day one, that's what we were, a a full program where people do two weeks and in two weeks our customers lose on average five kilos. And recently that's actually been increasing. So we're finding on average our customers are losing 6.175 kilos in two weeks to be exact. That was my data last week. So huge weight loss from real food, but they're sticking to the program. So it's about the commitment. Yeah, because if someone doesn't sort of follow advice or a program, it sort of devalues the whole thing, right? So it all comes back yeah. to compliance. So so obviously you, um, you've you grown very fast. You grew 68% last financial year, increasing revenue to over $8 million and making you one of the fastest growing new businesses in Australia. So like you said, sort of starting without a plan but with a really good uh, mission, a dream, an idea, you're getting market feedback, you're getting customers, and then you've got had this rapid growth, which obviously prevents, uh, I mean, sort of, it's it's good to grow. It's a goal and to hit scale and other things. But it's also challenging, especially in a sort of physical mm. product based business. So, what was that rapid growth like? And what was sort of the good times and also the hard times growing and fulfilling that sort of success that you built? Let me paint a picture. So, we thought we would watch Shark Tank when it finally went to air. We it was filmed nearly a year before it actually went to air. 
although we were told it would go to air in one month, two months, three months, four months. So we were preparing for something that we thought was actually never going to happen. And when we were preparing, we thought, how much food could we sell? Because at the time, we were selling about a 1,000 meals a week. And finally, when it goes to air, and it's nearly a year later, we haven't received any investment or any anything at all from Shark Tank, even though on the show we had been promised something. We were going through a due diligence process in the background. And sitting there watching with our, our little teams, we had five employees. And by that stage, I think I put on a couple more people as, as backups and casuals and mm. a production manager, just in case it took off. And we look on the website to see if people are getting on the site while we do the pitch. And we go from sort of you know, one person to 100, 1,000, 10,000, 20,000, 60,000 website crashes. <laughs> and we're like, oh, this is a disaster because this is the only way that we sell food. We had a little retail store then, so the, the wardrobe one in Somerville, and we had opened a small store in Mornington, which was our head office. And we had a, a literally a 40-foot container there where we'd been stockpiling food ready for Shark Tank. And I thought we'd better pop into work and just see what's happened at about, I don't know, 10 o'clock that night when it finished. And anyway, I'd connected up um, seven little VoIP voiceover internet phones, whatever they're called, just in case the phone rang. And sure enough, there are hundreds of messages and I'm <laughs> like, oh, this is interesting. And I started to answer the phone and people are wanting to know, can we deliver to them? When can they get food? And I was like, oh, no, we can't start answering calls now. We're going to have to come in fresh tomorrow. So got my little team to come in and literally there is a queue from the front of our store all the way, maybe a kilometre down the road waiting to get into the store. Trucks, vans, couriers that have driven from interstate overnight to pick up food. People have caught planes to come and pick up their order of food to be the first people to have this silver box that we we're offering on the Shark Tank show. So the stockholder food that we had, I said to my production manager, I think we need to have um, 800 boxes worth of food ready to go just in case. And anyway, I said to him, so where is all this food the day before? And he's like, oh, there's some here and there's some here and I've got some here. And I was like, it just doesn't look like enough. I'm looking at the container, looking at what we've got in the kitchen, looking in the retail stores. And I just couldn't see all of the food, but I was like, maybe I'm just not counting properly. As we go to air, he says to me, oh, I go, how much food do you think, you know, it's going to take to catch up if this goes well? And he's like, oh, look, I made 200 boxes worth. And I was like, what? We sold 2,500 within the first few minutes. So uh, when oh, a few hundred people turned up that morning, by 9.05, we were empty. We did not have one meal left. We were done. <laughs> so six weeks worth of orders. Um, needed to be done within a day basically and so for us it was really a case of well, 30 weeks worth of orders back then um yes yeah, scaling up production so I went from a team of five to 63 people in four weeks um I called on anyone and everyone that I knew in the community to help so literally the first 60 people that walked through the door got a job <laughs> and we were packing boxes printing orders sending things out helping in the kitchen, um, anything that we could to really sort it. So it was probably six months of real 
turmoil and breaking every system, rebuilding them and learning what we needed to run a business at that size. And fortunately, um, yeah, we got through the other end and um, managed to sustain growth year on year. So. And how did the idea to be on Shark Tank, uh, were you just a fan, a viewer, you just liked the show um, or was it just a random sort of chance, you didn't know much about it, but just kind of why not or, or how did that sort of start the idea to even apply to be on Shark Tank? I didn't know how you get money when, you lo- when you're losing money. So I was like, hmm, a bank won't give me money. I've run out of money. Who else do I ask for money? So the only other way that I knew of before I'd really ever had a loan in my life was Shark Tank. So just being naive and thinking, this is where you go when you need money. And so I had a, had a tried my luck and got through. And um, what they tell you as well, I, I guess, on TV, so there's been 100 episodes roughly in Australia, 50 that have had deals on air roughly, and only three of us apparently that have got the deal through due diligence at some point. So I don't know if those numbers have changed, but they were current when we were going through. And so that was, you know, you think what you see on TV is actually happening, but sometimes it just doesn't work out like that. And I guess now after running the business for six years, um, I can understand why those deals don't go through because a lot of businesses um, have great potential, but they don't have the systems or the people um, in place to actually enable them to scale. And it is about drive because there were many days that I wanted to give up, um, but there's something in me that just doesn't give up no matter what. Um, yeah, so. And what were the hardest moments? Was it pre-Shark Tank where you're running low on funds, you're not sure it, sort of it's working but you're a victim of your own success and it's not actually sort of making money or or, or was it when it was growing and then you're sort of all, um, you know, you're on this rocket ship and maybe it's growing even faster than you can sort of hold on. So, so what were some of those hardest moments? The biggest learning was actually understanding what cash flow meant. So I had so many people around me telling me, to watch your cash flow, manage your cash flow, businesses about cash flow. I didn't understand. We had all this money come into the bank account and I was very quickly spending it until it ran out. And then I started to understand what cash flow meant. And then I started to change all of my payment terms and creditor and debtor terms and put them all in our favour. And um, yeah, I started to realise that you actually need money to grow as well because if you want to hold X amount of weeks worth of food, then you need to get money in advance to be able to buy that food and people don't want to give you their money in advance. So that was my biggest learning was really understanding what cash flow means. So when you don't need to know, you don't know. And um, I was used to a service-based business where the harder I worked, the more I got paid. The more hours I worked, the more I got paid. Um, Whereas in product, that's not the way it works. You're always putting money out front and then hoping for the sales to come in. And if they don't, it cripples your cash flow. And if they do and you don't um, have enough stock, then that also cripples your cash flow. So, And what was the change there? Was it, again, essentially charging up front for the two-week packs? Was that the biggest thing and and having longer payment terms with suppliers, just flipping that cycle sort of in your favour? Were there other changes that you made to improve cash flow? 
definitely flipping the cycle so that we had longer payment terms. And our customers always do pay for the food up front before they get it, which was helpful. But I didn't realise how helpful that was until I was in that position. And then I would see other businesses on the other end of that. And particularly when we've gone through, um, you know, some really challenging times in the economy where people have to put the money out front as well. So, uh, we're lucky to be online because the transaction happens before you hand over the food. Um, but in saying that, we need to predict what those sales are going to be. So um, upskilling my team or, um, you know, taking on more skilled people on the team um, who could really have better foresight than me and look forward and forecast um, more with experience rather than forecasting from guessing because there's no way in a young business you can actually imagine where you will be this time next year. There's just, there's no way. Um, Yeah. Mm. And so what was the Shark Tank experience like? Not just what everyone can see on TV and YouTube, but the things that they can't see. Um, you know, often people talk about it's very long and, and then obviously they edit, it's like a highlight reel, obviously, because they're going to sit there and watch hours of questions. But um, maybe what are some things that might surprise people who are either viewers of Shark Tank or maybe entrepreneurs themselves and interested in potentially going on Shark Tank or a similar type show? So that um, here, here's this story that uh, jumping on a plane at about seven o'clock at night, the last one going out to Sydney, arriving in some time very late in the night at a hotel where they didn't actually have two rooms, so moving hotels, and it's literally close to midnight now, getting picked up in a bus at about six or seven in the morning, going into the studio, not have spoken to anyone yet, actually not knowing what's going on whatsoever. You're at the studio, you get your hair and makeup done. No one's really spoken to you yet and you can see everyone else all made up and you're thinking, what's actually going on? When do I find out what happens here? And then there's the big wooden doors and the red carpet and off you go, down, walk down the red carpet and the wooden doors will open. They went, well, what if they don't open? just out of curiosity. Oh, no, they always open. They're automatic doors. And I was like, okay, so the cameraman's in front of me and I'm walking towards these doors and bang, the doors don't (laughs) open. And the cameraman runs backwards into these doors. And I was like, oh, this is not working so well. Anyway, doors open. You go out, you stand on the red carpet, the five sharks are there, and you've got a cue to just stand there. So that was the longest minute of my life, standing there still on the red carpet in front of the five sharks, looking you up and down. You've got spotlights and cameras going everywhere. They're trying to catch your reaction and you're getting nervous because you're thinking about your one-minute pitch and you've got to get it right to get through. Um, yeah, so I give my pitch and um, two hours and 15 minutes later, I'm still being interrogated, haven't moved, haven't had a sip of water, haven't, haven't asked, can I check a fact, get a note? I was very lucky that I was so nervous about going on that I studied for three months. I watched every episode ever made. I wrote down every question ever asked and I wrote the answers for my business. So I felt that I was very well prepared going into it, particularly with the numbers because I know that's where they usually um, like to sort of pick out flaws. And it was, yeah, two hours and 15 minutes in where I said to, um, I've got my business partner out the back. He wasn't going to come on TV, but um, 
yeah, would you like to meet him? Because I thought we really had the deal here. I had two sharks that had offered us a deal, so Janine Ellis and Steve Baxter. And I went out and got the surgeon who was advised not to go on TV because the sharks would tear him apart, but (laughs) he came out as a support and it worked out well. We got the deal in the end. So, yeah, it was just under three hours of questioning. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, and you mentioned obviously a long due diligence process and a lot of deals don't pass that or I imagine sometimes mm. the companies change after being on the show. Um, once Janine Alice, the, the founder of Boost Juice and very successful sort of food entrepreneur, once you know she had agreed to, to do the deal, what was the process like working with her? Was there ideas, strategies she brought, um, support, resources, just on top of the publicity of the show in general? What was the biggest sort of lesson and takeaway that you implemented you know, post Shark Tank working with Janine? Yeah. So I guess post-Shark Tank, I I literally thought I was going to collect a cheque and walk out and that would be it. But it was meeting after meeting and no, we've changed our mind. No, we can't invest in you. No, we're not doing a deal. No, it's all over. Um, And I would keep contacting her and say, I've got some more information. I've got something else. I've got something else. I kept going in there until nine months later, finally, she decided that it was worth investing. So um, once she came on board, then I guess for me, the whole reason to go on Shark Tank, the money was part of it, but it was also, I knew what I didn't know, which was everything about business didn't even know what cash flow was and (laughs) I knew that she'd been through it before and that she had children so I had a one-year-old and two-year-old at the time and um, actually that was when I started BeFit Food with Shark Tank they were probably about three and five then and I thought she had four kids how did she do this and I actually wanted a mentor someone who could help me to navigate being an entrepreneur being a mum running a business and certainly being um, in a male-dominated world in the operation side of things like working with logistics and warehousing and transport and I often would find myself, um, I love working with men, I have no issues with that, but a lot of the time I was the only woman in the room so it was good to hear from someone else who'd been there and done that and um, just, you know, had some insider tips to survive some of those um quite gruelling or confronting meetings and that. So, yeah. Okay, excellent. (laughs) And um, so zooming out a little bit away from sort of uh, Shark Tank and your specific business, um, you know, obviously you research a lot of entrepreneurship. I'm sure you come across and and, uh, chat with other entrepreneurs. Um, What trends do you see in entrepreneurship in Australia? What are Australian entrepreneurs doing well um, and where are they maybe, you know, leaving room on the table for for more growth and success? Look, I think you have to always back yourself 100% because the second that you pull back and you think, oh, maybe I'll do a couple of things at a time or two jobs or three businesses or this or that, it tends not to work. So I had to step out of consulting completely to really see the change at BeFit Food to, you know, put my 70 hours a week in one place to help that, you know, get legs and actually move. Otherwise, it just wasn't going to. And I think um, a lot of um, entrepreneurs that are in startups or early in their businesses are still 
doing something on the side because everyone needs an income and mm. you, you're not going to generate an income generally with your startup, um, not from day one anyway. Um, and that's the biggest challenge because you've got to pay your bills. But if you don't put 110% into your business, it just won't get off the ground. It just has to have your your unlimited focus to really to really get it off the ground. And so you see a lot of people, again, sort of trying to wear multiple hats, trying to sort of do something off the side of their desk or on the weekends and also having a day job and just kind of not putting mm-hmm. enough momentum in either one to really sort of do well at their career and keep the career or do well at the, the startup or the new business and just getting stuck in limbo. Yeah, absolutely. And look, um, I'm, um, I know some amazing career people too, and but they put 110% into their career and they climb the ladder and they get to where they want to be and they actually love their job. They have the same passion that I have for my business for their job. And I think to be able to do that is just, it's in your, your personality type really. So it doesn't matter what you do, you have to love what you do. And if you don't love it, you're probably not going to thrive. So Starting a business for money or a career for money is never going to end well because money doesn't make anyone happy. So you've really just got to find something that you love and go for it and you'll enjoy the journey because it's not the destination anyone, I don't think, I'm not looking for a destination. Mm. I mean, you think one day maybe I won't have to work as hard or worry about things when I'm on holidays or have more weekends off or more time with kids, all those lovely things. But that's also not a destination. That's just finding more balance or something like that. And I think that comes with um, getting a grip on your business and managing time better and having the right people in the business to do the bits that you're not good at. And it's, it's always a real struggle too, because you think in your business, you know everything better than anyone else. And once you realize that someone, if someone else can do it better than you or just as good as you and you can let go of it, then you can actually bring some more time back into your life and work on the things that um, aren't as hard. And that's something, um, I guess, you know, there's areas of the business in, I don't know, computer coding that I have no idea about. And, you know, my personality wants to learn everything so I can just do it myself. And I'm like, just don't go there. Just don't let someone else who finds that stuff super easy do it for you in a tenth of the time rather than trying to learn something that you don't love or that you're not passionate about, but you're doing it for the sake of doing it. So. No, excellent advice. And, and so speaking of advice, you know, looking back um, maybe at the younger version of yourself at 18 years old where, you know, you're, like I said, working a whole bunch of casual jobs, interested in fitness, interested in study, interested in all these different things, interested in entrepreneurship, what advice would you give your sort of 18 to 20-year-old self knowing what you know now? Just go for it. Don't let anyone tell you that you can't do it. Absolutely go for it 110%, whatever it is. Were there people at the time when you were at, at sort of that age who were sort of telling you, you know, oh, we don't think this is a good idea, friends, family, uh, other people in your sort of inner circle who were kind of pointing you in a bit of a different direction that you had to sort of move away from? Oh, look, I think there was always that kind of carrot dangled with, you know, if you're a dietitian, the pinnacle of being a dietitian is working in a hospital. So I always felt like I had to have a hospital job to succeed at being a dietitian. And I guess there's satisfaction in that work and I loved doing it, but I knew I wasn't 
100% fulfilled in what I was doing. So I knew there was something else I wanted to do. My family were always super supportive, mum and dad. Um, I remember dad saying to me on many occasions, no matter what you do, just make sure you love your job. Dad said he hated work. Every day <laughs> of his life, he hated work. He said, whatever you do, whether you're making toilet paper, which is probably a successful type of job now, but it wasn't when I was 18, <laughs> or whatever it is, just make sure that you actually love what you're doing and you will be successful. And that always stuck with me. So when I was thinking about what uni degree to do or what career to have, it was my friends at school who said to me, I was like, I don't know what I want to do. And they're like, you're kidding me. You're obsessed with food and nutrition mm. and health. Why don't you do something with food? And I was like, oh, that's a good idea. Hadn't even crossed my mind. So I, I think I was just surrounded by positive people, positive friends and family that um, supported me to do whatever I wanted to do. And I think the independence, when you've got your own jobs and you're saving your own money, you know that you can, I'd pay for all my own courses. I pay, I paid for my school books, my school uniforms, everything. I paid for everything myself. And that independence that as soon as you know you can do it then no one can tell you otherwise I guess yeah no really good uh, perspective and maybe not my uniforms maybe just the blazers that I lost (laughs) (laughs) paid for my books and bits and pieces (laughs) yeah no and really yeah developing I guess that work ethic sort of stuck with you to this day and and so going back to BeFit Food what what does the next you know five ten years look like strategy vision direction Um, goals, things like you said, you know, you're sort of following the process versus the destination, but in in what general sort of direction or or sort of area do you want to aim in the next five to 10 years? Well, uh, I guess if anything positive at all has come out of COVID, it's just been the online demand and actually realising that people... the stress of actually having to go somewhere, pick something out, load it back in their car, drive home, put it away. Um, They don't want that anymore. They actually want home delivery. So even when Victoria came out of stage four lockdown for that very short period of time, um, we found that we thought people would come out, you know, everywhere and the shops would be crazy, but they weren't. They were still doing online. So our online sales didn't really change in that period. So I think the focus for our business, it's always been online, but we've we've done a couple of retail stores and lots of click and collects and um, we're in a few supermarkets and bits and pieces, but that online experience is something that we can keep improving. And I guess for me, I want to be able to give the, the full service, which is the dietitian consults and the support and all of the, the blog content, the interaction through podcasts, through videos and cooking demos and all of that um, online so that no matter where people are or on their own timelines, they can do it. So you're not saying, you know, you have to be here at 12 o'clock during the day when they're working or five o'clock at night. It's, you know, whenever they want to use it. So having it all online. And um, are you servicing sort of Australia, all capital cities, all major areas in Australia, or is it sort of focused on the East Coast or or Melbourne or what's your sort of current reach Mm. at the moment? As of the end of this month, we are everywhere. So Queensland, New South Wales, Bics, SA, ACT and Tasmania. I don't think I missed any. We're just not in the Northern Territory yet. So, And so, so in, you know, 10 years from now, would you be looking to sort of replicate the process in, in another market like a New Zealand, a Singapore, somewhere else like that? Is that something that's on the, the cards at all? 
Yeah, we've already got the trademarks, the US, the UK and China. So that's definitely on the cards. Trademarks have only got 10 years. So I reckon within five years, we'll be looking definitely to be going offshore. And we've had small opportunities to look at that even this year, just before COVID. So it's certainly something that is on the cards. Yeah. All right. Excellent. And do you have any final words, thoughts, comments, anything you'd like to leave the audience with? Uh, Just to back yourself to um, keep, stay positive, keep believing and work hard and it will all pay off. Um, I tell my kids now that, you know, every wish they have, your dreams, your wishes, they'll always come true, just not straight away. So, (laughs) you know, patience. So if you keep working at something, it will happen, but it just doesn't happen straight away. So just wait and be patient. (laughs) Yeah, it's like they say, no unrealistic goals, just unrealistic deadlines. I love it. Yes. Yeah. Thanks so much, Kate. Thanks for having me, Derek. Thank you for listening to the Future of Australia podcast. If you liked the episode, please subscribe and leave a review in iTunes. To learn more about the Future of Australia project, check out futureofaustralia.com. To reach out to Derek directly, you can email derek at futureofaustralia.com. That's D-E-R-E-K at futureofaustralia.com.